Consider the lobster, the enormous, pungent, and extremely well-marketed Maine Lobster Festival is held every late July in the state's mid-coast region, meaning the western side of Penobscot Bay, the nerve stem of Maine's lobster industry. What's called the mid-coast runs from Owl's Head and Thomaston in the south to Belfast in the north. Actually, it might extend all the way up to Bucksport, but we were never able to get farther north than Belfast on Route 1, whose summer traffic is, as you can imagine, unimaginable. The region's two main communities are Camden, with its very old money and yachty harbor, and five-star restaurants and phenomenal B&Bs, and Rockland, a serious old fishing town that hosts the festival every summer in historic Harbor Park, right along the water. Tourism and lobster are the Midcoast region's two main industries, and they're both warm weather enterprises, and the Maine Lobster Festival represents less an intersection of industries than a deliberate collision, joyful and lucrative and loud. The assigned subject of this gourmet article is the 56th annual MLF, 30th of July to 3rd of August, 2003, whose official theme this year was Lighthouses, Laughter, and Lobster. Total paid attendance was over 100,000, due partly to a national CNN spot in June, during which a senior editor of Food and Wine magazine hailed the MLF as one of the best food-themed galas in the world. 2003 Festival Highlights Concerts by Lee Ann Womack and Orleans Annual Maine Sea Goddess Beauty Pageant Saturday's Big Parade Sunday's William G. Atwood Memorial Crate Race annual amateur cooking competition, carnival rides, and midway attractions and food booths, and the MLF's main eating tent, where something over 25,000 pounds of fresh-caught Maine lobster is consumed after preparation in the world's largest lobster cooker near the ground's north entrance. Also available are lobster rolls, Lobster turnovers, lobster saute, down east, lobster salad, lobster bisque, lobster ravioli, and deep-fried lobster dumplings. Lobster thermidor is obtainable at a sit-down restaurant called the Black Pearl on Harbor Park's Northwest Wharf. A large alpine booth sponsored by the Maine Lobster Promotion Council has free pamphlets with recipes, eating tips, and lobster fun facts. The winner of Friday's amateur cooking competition prepares saffron lobster ramekins, the recipe for which is now available for public downloading at www.mainlobsterfestival.com. There are lobster t-shirts and lobster bobblehead dolls and inflatable lobster pool toys and clampon lobster hats with big scarlet claws that wobble on springs. Your assigned correspondent saw it all, 
accompanied by one girlfriend and both his own parents, one of which parents was actually born and raised in Maine, albeit in the extreme northern inland part, which is potato country, and a world away from the touristic mid-coast. For practical purposes, everyone knows what a lobster is. As usual, though, there's much more to know than most of us care about. It's all a matter of what your interests are. Taxonomically speaking, a lobster is a marine crustacean of the family Homeridae, characterized by five pairs of jointed legs, the first pair terminating in large pincerish claws used for subduing prey. Like many other species of benthic carnivore, lobsters are both hunters and scavengers. They have stocked eyes, gills on their legs, and antennae. There are a dozen or so different kinds worldwide, of which the relevant species here is the main lobster, Homerus americanus. The name lobster comes from the Old English lepestre, which is thought to be a corrupt form of the Latin word for locust, combined with the Old English lop, which meant spider. Moreover, a crustacean is an aquatic arthropod of the class Crustacea, which comprises crabs, shrimp, barnacles, lobsters, and freshwater crayfish. All of this is right there in the encyclopedia. And anthropods are members of the phylum Anthropoda, which phylum covers insects, spiders, crustaceans, and centipedes, millipedes, all of whose main commonality, besides the absence of a centralized brain-spine assembly, is a chitinous exoskeleton composed of segments to which appendages are articulated in pairs. The point is that lobsters are basically giant sea insects. Like most anthropods, they date from the Jurassic period, biologically so much older than mammalia that they might as well be from another planet, and they are, particularly in their natural brown-green state, brandishing their claws like weapons and with thick antennae a whip, not nice to look at. And it's true that they are garbagemen of the sea, eaters of dead stuff, although they'll also eat some live shellfish, certain kinds of injured fish, and sometimes one another. But they are themselves good eating, or so we think now. Up until sometime in the 1800s, though, lobster was literally low-class food, eaten only by the poor and institutionalized. Even in the harsh penal environment of early America, some colonies had laws against feeding lobsters to inmates more than once a week because it was thought to be cruel and unusual, like making people eat rats. One reason for their low status was how plentiful lobsters were in old New England. Unbelievable abundance is how one source describes the situation, including accounts of Plymouth, pilgrims waiting out and capturing all they wanted by hand, and of early Boston's seashore being littered with lobsters after hard storms. These latter were treated as a smelly nuisance and ground up for fertilizer. 
There is also the fact that pre-modern lobster was cooked dead and then preserved, usually packed in salt or crude hermetic containers. Maine's earliest lobster industry was based around a dozen such seaside canneries in the 1840s, from which lobster was shipped as far as way, as far away as California, in demand only because it was cheap and high in protein, basically chewable fuel. Now, of course, lobster is posh, a delicacy, only a step or two down from caviar. The meat is richer and more substantial than most fish, its taste subtle compared to the marine gaminess of mussels and clams. In the U.S. pop food imagination, lobster is now the seafood analog to steak, with which it's so often twinned as surf and turf on the really expensive part of the chain steakhouse menu. In fact, one obvious project of the MLF and of its omnipresently sponsorial Maine Lobster Promotion Council is to counter the idea that lobster is unusually luxe or unhealthy or expensive, suitable only for effete palates or the occasional blow-the-diet treat. It is emphasized over and over in presentations and pamphlets at the festival that lobster meat has fewer calories, less cholesterol, and less saturated fat than chicken. And in the main eating tent, you can get a quarter, industry shorthand for a one and one-fourth pound lobster, a four-ounce cup of melted butter, a bag of chips, and a soft roll with butter pat for around $12, which is only slightly more expensive than supper at McDonald's. Of course, the common practice of dipping the lobster meat in melted butter, torpedoes, all of these happy fat specks, which none of the council's promotional staff ever mentions any more than potato industry PR talks about sour cream and bacon bits. Be apprised, though, that the Maine Lobster Festival's democratization of lobster comes with all the massed inconvenience and aesthetic compromise of real democracy. See, for example, the aforementioned Maine Eating Tent, for which there is a constant Disneyland-grade-esque queue, and which turns out to be a square quarter mile of awning-shaded cafeteria lines and rows of long institutional tables at which friend and stranger alike sit cheek by jowl, cracking and chewing and dribbling. It's hot, and the sagged roof traps the steam and the smells, which latter are strong and only partly food-related. It is also loud, and a good percentage of the total noise is masticatory. The suppers come in styrofoam trays, and the soft drinks are iceless and flat, and the coffee is convenience store coffee in more styrofoam, and the utensils are plastic. There are none of the special long skinny forks for pushing out the tail meat, though a few savvy diners bring their own. Nor do they give you near enough napkins, considering how messy lobster is to eat especially when you're squeezed onto benches alongside children of various ages and vastly different levels of fine motor development, 
Not to mention the people who've somehow smuggled in their own beer in enormous aisle-blocking coolers, or who all of a sudden produce their own plastic tablecloths and spread them over large portions of tables to try to reserve them, the tables, for their own little groups, and so on. Any one example is no more than a petty inconvenience, of course, but the MLF turns out to be full of irksome little downers like this. See, for instance, the main stage's headliner shows, where it turns out that you have to pay $20 extra for a folding chair if you want to sit down, or the North Tent's mad scramble for the NyQuil cup-sized samples of finalists' entries handed out after the cooking competition or the much-touted main sea goddess pageant finals, which turn out to be excruciatingly long and to consist mainly of endless thanks and tributes to local sponsors. Let's not even talk about the grossly inadequate port facilities, or the fact that there's nowhere to wash your hands before or after eating. What the main Lobster Festival really is, is a mid-level county fair with a culinary hook, and in this respect, it's not unlike Tidewater Crab Festivals, Midwest Corn Festivals, Texas Chili Festivals, etc., and shares with these venues the core paradox of all teeming commercial demotic events. It's not for everyone. Nothing against the euphoric senior editor of Food and Wine, but I'd be surprised if she'd ever actually been in here, been here in Harbor Park, amid crowds of people slapping canal zone mosquitoes as they eat deep-fried Twinkies and watch Professor Paddywhack on six-foot stilts in a raincoat with plastic lobsters protruding from all directions on springs terrify their children. Lobster is essentially a summer food. This is because we now prefer our lobsters fresh, which means they have to be recently caught, which for both tactical and economic reasons takes place at depths less than 25 fathoms. Lobsters tend to be hungriest and most active, i.e. most trappable, at summer water temperatures of 40 to 50 degrees. In the autumn, most Maine lobsters migrate out into deeper water, either for warmth or to avoid the heavy waves that pound New England's coast all winter. Some burrow into the bottom. They might hibernate, nobody's sure. Summer is also lobsters' molting season, specifically early to mid-July. Chitinous arthropods grow by molting, rather the way people have to buy bigger cloves as they age and gain weight. Since lobsters can live to be over 100, they can also get to be quite large, as in 30 pounds or more. Though truly senior lobsters are rare now because New England's waters are so heavily trapped. Anyway, Hence the culinary distinction between hard and soft-shell lobsters, the latter sometimes a.k.a. shudders. A soft-shell lobster is one that has recently molted. In mid-coast restaurants, the summer menu often offers 
both kinds, with shutters being slightly cheaper even though they're easier to dismantle and the meat is allegedly sweeter. The reason for the discount is that a multi-lobster uses a layer of seawater for insulation while its new shell is hardening, so there's slightly less actual meat when you crack open a shutter, plus a redolent gout of water that gets all over everything and can sometimes jet out lemon-like and catch a table mate right in the eye. If it's winter or you're buying lobster someplace far from New England, on the other hand, you can almost bet that the lobster is a hard shell, which for obvious reasons, travel better. As an a la carte entree, lobster can be baked, broiled, steamed, grilled, sautéed, stir-fried, or microwaved. The most common method, though, is boiling. If you're someone who enjoys having lobster at home, this is probably the way you do it, since boiling is so easy. You need a large kettle with cover, which you fill about half full with water. The standard advice is that you want 2.5 quarts of water per lobster. Seawater is optimal, or you can add 2 tablespoons salt per quart from the tap. It also helps to know how much your lobsters weigh. You get the water boiling, put in the lobsters one at a time, cover the kettle, and bring it back up to a boil. Then you bank the heat and let the kettle simmer. 10 minutes for the first pound of lobster, then 3 minutes for each pound after that. This is assuming you've got hard shell lobsters, which again, if you don't live between Boston and Halifax, is probably what you've got. For shutters, you're supposed to subtract 3 minutes from the total. The reason the kettle's lobsters turn scarlet is that boiling somehow suppresses every pigment in their chitin but one. If you want an easy test of whether the lobsters are done, you try pulling on one of their antennae. If it comes out of the head with minimal effort, you're ready to eat. A detail so obvious that most recipes don't even bother to mention it is that each lobster is supposed to be alive when you put it in the kettle. This is part of lobster's modern appeal. It's the freshest food there is. There's no decomposition between harvesting and eating. And not only do lobsters require no cleaning or dressing or plucking, they're relatively easy for vendors to keep alive. They come up alive in the traps, are placed in containers of seawater, and can, so long as the water is aerated and the animal's claws are pegged or banded to keep them from tearing one another up under the stresses of captivity, survive right up until they're boiled. Most of us have been in supermarkets or restaurants that feature tanks of live lobsters from which you can pick out your supper while it watches you point. And part of the overall spectacle of the Maine Lobster Festival is that you can see actual lobstermen's vessels docking at the wharves along the northeast grounds and unloading fresh-caught product, which is transferred by hand or cart 150 yards to the great 
clear tanks stacked up around the festival's cooker, which is, as mentioned, billed as the world's largest lobster cooker and can process over 100 lobsters at a time for the main eating tent. So then here is a question that's all but unavoidable at the world's largest lobster cooker and may arise in kitchens across the U.S. Is it all right to boil a sentient creature alive just for our gustatory pleasure? A related set of concerns. Is the previous question irksomely PC or sentimental? What does all right even mean in this context? Is the whole thing just a matter of personal choice? As you may or may not know, a certain well-known group called People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals thinks that the morality of lobster boiling is not just a matter of individual conscience. In fact, one of the very first things we hear about the MLF, well, to set the scene, were coming in by cab from the almost indescribably odd and rustic Knox County Airport, very late on the night before the festival opens sharing the cab with a wealthy political consultant who lives on Vinalhaven Island in the bay half a year. He's headed for the island ferry in Rockland. The consultant and the cab driver are responding to informal journalistic probes about how people who live in the mid-coast region actually view the MLF, as in, is the festival just a big-dollar tourist thing, is it something local residents look forward to attending, take genuine civic pride in, etc.? The cab driver, who's in his 70s, one of apparently a whole platoon of retirees the cab company puts on to help with the summer rush, and wears a U.S. flag lapel pin, and drives in what can only be called a very deliberate way, assures us that locals do endorse and enjoy the MLF, although he himself hasn't gone in years. And now, come to think of it, no one he and his wife know has, either. However, the demi-local consultant's been to recent festivals a couple times. One gets the impression it was at his wife's behest, of which his most vivid impression was that You have to line up for an ungodly long time to get your lobsters. And meanwhile, there are all these ex-flower children coming up and down, along the line, handing out pamphlets that say, The lobsters die in terrible pain and you shouldn't eat them. And it turns out that the post-hippies of the consultant's recollection were activists from PETA. There were no PETA people in obvious view at the 2003 MLF, but they'd been conspicuous as at many of the recent festivals. Since at least the mid-1990s, articles in everything from the Camden Herald to the New York Times have described PETA urging boycotts of the main lobster festival, often deploying celebrity spokesmen like Mary Tyler Moore for open letters and ads, saying stuff like lobsters are extraordinarily sensitive and, to me, eating a lobster is out of the question. 
More concrete is the oral testimony of Dick, our florid and extremely gregarious rental car liaison, to the effect that PETA has been around so much during recent years that a kind of brittlely tolerant homeostasis now obtains between the activists and the festival's locals. E.g., we had some incidents a couple years ago. One lady... One lady took most of her clothes off and painted herself like a lobster. Almost got herself arrested, but for the most part, they're let alone. They do their thing, and we do our thing.